the Slaughter in May podcast. Hello and welcome to the Slaughter in May podcast. I'm Lisa Wright, a partner here at Slaughter in May, and I'm joined by my fellow partners, Jan Putnis and Harry Hecht. We're going to be chatting today about how environmental, social and governance, or ESG issues, are relevant to business strategy, and in particular, the role of in-house lawyers in shaping that strategy. The focus on ESG is already requiring companies to reevaluate how they must meet their existing legal obligations, but it's also requiring them to remain agile and alert so that they can cope with changes that are coming over the horizon. So given that we've got the UN's COP26 conference coming up in November, I wanted to focus in on climate change. There's obviously a strong focus on climate change, not only within ESG circles, but also in the broader business and investment community. We're seeing increasing government, public and investor pressure to address the need to transition to zero carbon. There's new legislation in the pipeline and we're likely to see more of that in light of COP26. It seems likely that stakeholders will become increasingly active in how they engage with companies over their green credentials and efforts to finance more green projects, as well as a push to green the financial system itself. And many businesses are shifting their products and strategies to reflect and adapt to these various pressures. So in short, there's a lot going on and seemingly a lot more to come. So Harry, I wondered whether you could put yourself in the shoes of an in-house lawyer and tell us how you would go about joining the conversation on climate change. Thanks, Lisa. I think there are many avenues into the conversation on climate change, really, from you know, how it's dealt with as part of a, a company's risk and governance processes to its impact on things like strategy, communications, investor relations, um, and even the, the operational changes needed to reduce a business's carbon footprint. But ultimately, as an in-house lawyer, it's often easiest to start by taking ownership for ensuring compliance with concrete legal obligations, whether those be long-standing obligations that are now being viewed differently in light of the changing perceptions of ESG, or new legal obligations arising as governments begin to reflect the changing expectations in society around climate change and the environment as a whole. Great. Could you maybe bring that to life for us with an example? A good example is the area of corporate disclosure, specifically climate reporting and sustainability standards. There's a significant amount of new climate-related regulation and guidance, including what's known as TCFD, which stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Framework. There's also the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, the Non-Financial Reporting Directive, and the upcoming UK and EU taxonomies, which are essentially classification systems looking to establish a list of environmentally sustainable economic activities. But TCFD is really the main focus at the moment because the FCA's listing rules now require premium listed companies to provide additional climate-related disclosures in line with that TCFD framework. And there are also moves to expand this to large occupational pension schemes and public interest entities. And the UK government has in fact said that it hopes to apply the TCFD framework across the whole economy by 2025. So for the novices amongst us like me, would you be able to explain how TCFD will apply and what changes we can expect to see? The exact way that TCFD will apply actually varies by sector, but in broad terms, it includes four high-level types of climate disclosure, governance, strategy, risk management, and targets and metrics. 
And it also includes 11 recommended disclosures for companies to make. And I say recommended because TCFD operates on a comply or explain basis, much like the UK Corporate Governance Code, which many listeners will be familiar with. Although we expect that the, the bulk of listed businesses here, you know, they have little reason not to disclose in line with the recommendations. The TCFD disclosures are intended to give investors, customers and financiers a way of interrogating what a business is doing in order to essentially drive increased action. The idea being that reporting on something often spurs businesses to change their behaviour and allows others to hold them to account when they don't. Practice is, to be honest with you, very much emerging, but we're helping a number of clients work through the disclosure requirements and what they mean for their, you know, their broader governance and operational processes. So if taking ownership for ensuring legal compliance is where you'd start, like that's the entry level I think you mentioned, what would be the next step and how can in-house lawyers really add value? I think the real way of adding value is probably to be on top of the more emerging initiatives because today's consultation paper is tomorrow's recommended practice and today's recommended practice is tomorrow's listing rule requirement. So to continue with the disclosure example, TCFD started as a voluntary private sector initiative that's now been adopted into legislation. So there's real value in being on the lookout for these emerging trends and keeping the broader business up to date on what the the standards of the future might look like. So as we've already mentioned, well-formulated disclosure requirements do not just drive corporate disclosure, but broader corporate behaviour, whether operational or strategic. So being on top of emerging trends in this space has really got positive impacts not just from a legal perspective, but also from a broader business perspective. And you begin to understand how a business and the way it's run might need to change. Okay, so continuing with the topic of climate reporting and sustainability standards, what do you think is coming next? It can be hard to know where to look, to be honest, Lisa, as there are a lot of competing disclosure standards out there. But I would keep an eye on the so-called Big Five, um, these Big Five standards for sustainability reporting. They've all got acronyms of their own, which I won't go through here. But the, the thing you need to know is that they've now become the big four as uh, an organisation called SASB has merged with another called the IIRC, uh, happened in June, to create what's now known as the Value Reporting Foundation. Now, these organisations are pushing for more and more companies to report on their sustainability in a you know, more meaningful and, and rigorous and holistic way. And this has caught the attention of IFRS, who are consulting on whether to to incorporate sustainability standards into their reporting frameworks. Now, if that happens, that could have a really big impact on how companies around the world report their activities in their accounts. And so I definitely mark that down as one to watch. So Jan, Harry's told us about compliance and spotting what's coming over the hill. But beyond that, I'd be interested in in whether you think there's a role for in-house lawyers in helping their organisations through more strategic change. Yes, Lisa, I think there's an absolutely central role for in-house lawyers. They should be at the forefront of this. Almost uniquely, we know that with climate change, the way in which businesses operate will certainly have to change substantially within the next 10 years, and in many cases likely sooner, in order to reduce emissions and generally to make operating models more sustainable. Every single business will need to operate differently, So the senior management, the directors and other management of those businesses will be asking if they can foresee how they will have to operate in this new world and what the legal constraints, restrictions, 
regulatory restrictions on that will be, and general counsel and other in-house lawyers can play a key role in articulating this. It's likely, I think, that this change will require a rejection of incrementalism and an embrace in many, many businesses of rapid transformation. And that will be unsettling for some, but, you know, a, a business opportunity for many others. And in, the in-house legal function has a key role to play in making sure that runs as smoothly as possible, because there will be those that go down a wrong turn, get things wrong during a period of rapid transformation. And the business decisions that the legal function helps senior management to take must be informed by robust judgments of risk. Uh, and clearly the legal function has its role to play there. Now, assuming I'm right about this, and organisations do need to be more ambitious, more radical to save themselves and to help uh, you know, save the otherwise awful consequences of not doing anything about climate change, for example, then the company as an entity and the business of a company will need to have the ability to imagine and implement the changes it needs to make across multiple fronts uh, that lie way outside business as usual. So there's a really important role here for general counsel and their colleagues in the legal function to be part of that forward-looking initiative. And actually, aside from all of the doom and gloom about climate change and the risks of not doing enough about it, it's quite an exciting time to be a lawyer with an opportunity to contribute in a positive way to that effort, I think. So it sounds like the timescale will need to be quite ambitious. How quickly do you think businesses and their GCs actually do need to react? Well, I think in many cases, as a matter of real urgency. There's also the point that decisions made today can lock a business into a particular position for many years down the line. So even if a business has 2030, say, in mind as its target date for a substantial reduction in carbon emissions, the strategic, operational and governance related changes needed to deliver that reduction need to be thought about now. There's also the not insignificant matter that legislation and market practice is evolving very rapidly and will also impose a need for wide-ranging changes. So even though we don't know exactly what form those changes will take in many cases, an opportunity exists for in-house lawyers to preempt what might be coming and to assist with the process of strategic and operational change. Uh, one obvious example is supply chains. Virtually every business has suppliers and customers, of course, even if the chain isn't very complex. But the idea of being on the receiving end of climate-related requirements from others and of imposing such requirements on your counterparties, your customers, is fairly new and potentially far-reaching. It's relatively straightforward, though in many cases still not easy to deal with the emissions a company produces itself. But the TCFD requirement to look at so-called scope three emissions, which are the emissions produced by a company's suppliers and customers up and downstream of them, means many customers will need to look hard at their supply chain more broadly and to understand how, how they might be able to influence it. Okay, so supply chain is a key issue, but what you've just described, Jan, might be quite daunting to some. Harry, how do you think this can best be tackled? You could certainly take a granular approach, if you like, you know, looking at every existing element of the business with a fine tooth comb and trying to future-proof it all in one go. But I think in reality, a more realistic approach is probably going to be taking a broader view and, and looking to work within existing structures and processes in the business to embed 
policies, if you like, that reflect that strategic goal of carbon reduction. So you might start, for example, by asking some key questions around the business. So, you know, how, how do your procurement colleagues test and challenge providers of goods and services on their carbon reduction activities as part of the procurement process? Looking more broadly, um, you know, when, you're, when your strategy team is formulating new strategic plans or executing on existing ones, what checks and balances exist to ensure that carbon reduction has actually been taken into account? How about your risk committee? How do they think about climate risk? Do your existing risk processes properly identify and communicate mitigants against those risks? Turning to finance and treasury, do your team in that space consider green objectives and green criteria when they're raising funds or refinancing existing facilities? And finally, for another example, your M&A team, do they think about sustainability and carbon reduction related risks when they're looking to diligence you know, a potential acquisition target? And we mentioned the, the big four reporting frameworks a little earlier. Those frameworks, as well as a range of, of other frameworks that are out there, can help you start to try and place these questions in context and make it a bit more manageable because they give you topic areas to think through when wrestling with these questions and effectively give you a bit more structure. So once you've looked at those sorts of structural questions, where do you go next? Uh, yeah, I think you could then help to build some more detailed processes, documents and procedures over time. And doing it over time is perhaps less daunting. So examples of this next layer of detail might include doing things like adjusting standard form DD reports and questionnaires that you use for, for acquisitions and other projects. Or it may mean including particular provisions in standard form contracts that you use with suppliers and customers. Or perhaps adjusting internal endorsement processes that you need to, to go through for strategic changes. Um, in particular, trying to look at making sure that relevant decision makers internally have actually considered sustainability and carbon reduction as one of their criteria when they come to decide whether to proceed with a particular project. We have actually seen you know, some of our key client contacts leading on these kinds of activities internally um, and highlighting key issues. But you're absolutely right, Lisa, to point out that there are often others uh, internally who are better placed to lead on some of these topic areas. And one thing we have seen is in-house legal teams working alongside uh, their organisation's dedicated ESG function where there is one. And that can be quite effective um, in, in sort of achieving the changes we've been describing. But with many of these issues, the lawyer's role is as much to understand the risks of not getting things right and, and not making some of these changes and managing that risk as it is in actually you know, understanding what the business is doing in practice and keeping an eye on, on that side of things. But there are tangible actions that lawyers can lead on. So going back to the supply chain example, a key activity might be diligencing value chains through the business for things like human rights, you know, governance issues, environmental or climate risks, etc. And providing suitable guidance to, to management on how to adjust those. Now, this can be done to supply chains as they're established, but it can also be done on an ongoing basis as well. And you can, you know, in, in that way, you can help the business team understand what information is needed from third parties in order to meet your disclosure obligations on things like scope three emissions, for example. But also what information others, you know, other third parties might be asking of, of the business itself in order to satisfy their own obligations. One final thing I'd probably just mention in terms of those sort of tangible actions is due diligence in a different context in the, in the world of M&A. 
I think there there's also quite a lot of scope for um, you know trying to affect a bit of change because that is an increasingly relevant topic in the sense that ISG, ESG related exposures are getting more and more attention when people come to buy or sell a particular business or asset. Um, perhaps you know sometimes even more so than financial returns or financial exposures. Um, so that that's quite a good example of another place where actually looking at the nitty gritty, if you like, of the questions that are being asked of a counterparty is very helpful. So this all seems potentially quite involved and, and complex. And, and I guess maybe that's why we've seen um, an increase in, in, in those presenting themselves as, as um, ESG specialists. But, but Jan, do you think that means that, you know, actually there is only limited space for in-house lawyers here? No, I don't. Um, I mean, not everyone will agree with me on this, but I'm one of the people who sees real risks in over-specialisation in this area. I think there is a role for specialists, uh, but I think this is a pervasive topic. Everyone will need to know about this and to know how to apply it in the areas and the clients they advise. Uh, And therefore, over-specialisation and an assumption on the part of non-specialists, the specialists will do the work, will tell everyone what to do, would be a great shame and I think would negate uh, a lot of the gains that have been made already in spreading knowledge about ESG-related topics around the legal profession. So over-specialisation, I think, is the enemy here. Uh, You don't need to be an expert to get stuck into this. I think you just need to get stuck in and to understand and do the work to appreciate how these topics are going to affect the areas in which you practice. I don't pretend that that's easy and we'll come on to talk about some tips on how how you can get up the learning curve if you're not a specialist already but it is something everyone's going to have to do because it's going to affect all of our lives in significant ways sustainability has an increasingly regulatory element to it and in-house lawyers have an essential role to play in helping to ensure compliance but it also affects strategy reputation of course and the resilience of businesses Um, and it will be of interest at the highest levels in certainly most of our clients and many other companies around the world. In-house lawyers can help keep directors on the straight and narrow when it comes to complying with their duties to ensure that companies' actions align with sustainability and ESG-related objectives. And general counsel, for example, are ideally placed to articulate the risks and opportunities associated with ESG at board level and to make sure that they're effectively managed, and to drive operationalization of relevant policies. So this shift means that there is scope to found good legal risk management, in my view, on taking account of stakeholders' needs, and the very real risks that climate change poses to the ways that businesses operate. So I'd just like to expand on the point Jan just made, that this is an issue that everybody needs to be able to engage with as an integral part of everyday business. So we all know that some industries are more in the spotlight on this than others. But Harry, what if your business has nothing to do with the kinds of activities that come to most people's minds when talking about climate change? I think it's fair to say that a lot more people need to know about climate change and ESG than currently do. Um, And to Jan's point, it really shouldn't be left just to the enthusiasts. It's true that the impact is different depending on sector and geography, but the direction of travel towards 
more ESG integration more generally is clear. And this does affect a, a very wide range of businesses, really. So financial institutions, for example, are being asked to finance green, but also to, to green finance itself. And they're under pressure to take responsibility for the impacts of their financing activities. There's also pressure on them to take a more active role in mobilising finance towards commitments that are aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But it's not just banks. Oil and gas, mining, retail, aviation, food uh, and tech, for example, in all of these are increasingly in the frame. And eventually, I think all businesses will need to change to a certain extent. So whilst things like energy companies are obviously in the firing line on these issues, so are less obvious businesses. So take a chain of cinemas, for example. You might think a cinema chain doesn't have any real you know, appreciable impact on climate, but they do make choices that impact their green credentials. So they'll need to make climate-related disclosures for a start if they're within, within scope. But beyond that, uh, the technology they use, you know, the things like film projectors, etc., the office and cinema space that they have, and the suppliers and other third parties that they contract with, all of those things will have an effect on how much carbon is put into the atmosphere directly or indirectly. And the challenge is to make their business model as sustainable as possible from start to finish. Another example, is, again, something you might not think of uh, you know, Im immediately, is a bank taking security over housing. So the value of that security could drop if those houses aren't constructed in a way that meets the changing environmental and construction standards. And that's an example of a so-called transition risk. And they can also be affected by more obvious physical risks as a result of changes in climate, things like increased flooding, for example. And I think those examples demonstrate that the prominence of these issues might vary by sector, but the issues themselves are all relevant really regardless of the nature of your business. And in-house lawyers you know, have a key role in articulating and facilitating any move towards a greener business. Okay, thank you. So I'm sure those listening will be interested in any practical advice we can give them. Jan, could I ask what would be your top one or two practical tips for in-house lawyers? A couple of points, Lisa, I would mention to start off with. The first is communication. As lawyers, you have a key role in articulating how to transition the businesses you're advising to this new world. All businesses will need to operate differently within a small number of years. And in-house lawyers in particular can play a key role in explaining and driving forward how the business will operate in that new world. That will likely mean embracing rapid transformation, as we've discussed. And this, co this comes with its own risks and fundamental governance questions for boards on which lawyers can assist. Robust risk judgments provided by in-house lawyers will be key to managing this, and obviously external lawyers can help them to make those judgments. It's also important that you think about who your stakeholders are and how you'll engage with them on these topics. For public companies, this would obviously include shareholders, but it's not just public companies that can look to do this. Secondly, I would talk about networks. Um, so think about your networks and how they can help you um, both learn about this topic and understand what the issues are that it's giving rise to. So it can feel like there's a huge amount of noise around ESG, and of course there is, and it's hard to hear what the key messages are or what to do about them. So there's a question of who can you speak to? 
Now, you might be surprised what your existing networks can offer on this, um, but even if you don't have a go-to network, you could consider creating one, perhaps. Um, there's no right way or wrong way of doing this, as practice is evolving rapidly, so talking to a range of people would be a good idea. Uh, some existing organisations, such as Lawyers for Net Zero and the Net Zero Lawyers Alliance, are existing networks that may be of interest and can, can provide support to you, connections and resources to help you lead on climate ambition, which can then be folded into how your organisation operates with your advice. You might also look to participate in public consultations and industry bodies in order to give yourself a public voice and your organisation a public voice, and also to help you better understand what the requirements are and to look to ensure that they work well for your business and for society and the environment. So there's ample evidence from the finance, financial sector, for example, where I spend a lot of time advising clients that involvement in public consultations helps to drive greater overall understanding of what will be required, uh, as well as an opportunity, of course, for you to influence outcomes. And Harry, what about you? What would your top tips be? I think my first would be to remain flexible and be responsive. You know, keep an eye out for new things coming along because as we've discussed, it's a fast moving area made up of lots of overlapping requirements, legislative and non-legislative. In particular, I'd look out for what happens in the run up to COP26, as that's a you know, really is a key driver for global action on climate change. And we're we're actually producing a series of pieces on this, of which this podcast is obviously one. So if you want a place to start, feel free to take a look at our, our website or get in touch. Other useful resources include things like the Guide for General Counsel on Corporate Sustainability. My next tip would be to start evaluating key internal policies and things like contractual arrangements through the lens of climate reduction and sustainability. Start thinking about how you might embed sustainability and build in flexibility to deal with this rapidly changing area. When it comes to climate change, your business's direct impacts are clearly important, but so are indirect impacts as well. And this is the sort of thing that as we've discussed, it can be managed by GCs and legal teams through looking at your activities, including things like supply chain and having a look at things like you know, the key legal documents and policies that you have in place to regulate them. I'd also watch out for increasing climate related litigation from shareholders, employees and NGOs. Final thing I'd just say is, is something on targets. Targets can help drive change but you've really got to make sure that any targets you set will stand up to scrutiny before they're put out into the wider world and put into effect. Otherwise, you can always you know, face the risk, whether accidental or otherwise, of being accused of greenwashing. So, Jan, how do you think about COP26 in light of the discussion we've just had? Well, I think the important point to remember there, Lisa, is COP26 will either deliver radical change or it won't. Uh, if it does, clearly that will have some potentially very significant effects on the business community and on the need that businesses have for good legal and regulatory advice in this area. If COP26 doesn't deliver that outcome, though, the pressure will remain from a whole variety of stakeholders on businesses, particularly those responsible for emissions, to alter their business models. So the pressure will remain for change, and the need will remain for lawyers, both in-house and external, to give advice in this area. So I suppose what I'm saying, Lisa, is this remains very important, regardless of the outcome 
of COP26, although so many of us are, of course, hoping that it does deliver a good and coherent outcome that we can advise our clients on. Thank you, Jan. Um, I'm just conscious of time. Um, and as a parting thought, I wanted to ask you what areas you're expecting to advise on in terms of ESG in the next six to 12 months. I I'll go first. Um, in my area, competition law, there's been a lot of focus recently on the extent to which competition law might be an obstacle or at least a deterrent to companies collaborating to achieve ESG objectives. And this is in the context of some industry voices saying that they've achieved as much as they can through unilateral action and that collaboration between firms, including between competitors, is needed to take the next transformative steps. And to that end, several significant competition agencies, including notably the European Commission, are looking at their enforcement guidelines to see whether they need to make changes. And so I expect those initiatives to generate questions in the coming months as to the extent to which competitors can go further in how they collaborate in the area of sustainability and, and ESG than they might be able to do in other contexts. Harry, how about you? Uh, thanks, Lisa. I think for me, the two areas would be M&A and then sort of activism uh, in terms of shareholder expectations. So taking M&A firstly, I think more and more transactions are going to be driven by ESG related pressures or affected by them, um, in particular by corporates looking to pivot their portfolios away from certain activities and into others. But I also think there'll be you know, some questions posed of, of corporate lawyers in particular that, that haven't been asked before. So you now I think there will be an increasing amount of work particularly for high profile businesses from a climate perspective, so those in the extractive industries, looking at how perhaps assets might be retained and managed safely towards the end of their natural life um, or even early closure, rather than simply selling them to the highest bidder. Um, and I think that could involve some fairly creative structuring and sort of novel thinking. And then the second area I mentioned, the, the activism side of things, I think there'll definitely be some work supporting corporates in responding to the changing expectations in society that we've mentioned, um, you know, particularly activists, but not just them. Also, you know, the more traditional long only institutions are becoming much more active in this area. And that that might include direct work, like responding to resolutions that are requisitioned. But it's also the indirect work flowing from that kind of engagement with stakeholders. So whether that might be things like portfolio changes or changes to governance structures, I think there's quite a few indirect consequences of that activity. Well, most of my clients are in the financial sector. And the interesting thing about that sector is it's not just consumed with uh, the importance of disclosure and risk management changes around ESG considerations. It's also increasingly preoccupied with the uh, behavioural changes that financial sector regulators are trying to impose on banks and insurers. And advising on what those should be, how our uh, clients in that sector should react to regulatory initiatives in that area is, is exciting because in some ways that area is ahead of some other sectors in focusing on behavioural change. And by that I mean what sort of business they do, which clients they want to take on, how they treat those clients, what they require those clients to do before they will sell a product to them, underwrite their risk or otherwise deal with them. So it's a very interesting time to be involved in advising financial institutions on this, 
um, because of the number of unknowns and because regulators to some extent are, are feeling their way as well in this area. So I think with that, we're out of time. So thank you so much, Jan and Harry, for a great conversation today. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.